I've told you this before. Every Sunday afternoon that I can, I take a nap. But before I do, I look up, just as a matter of course, what the readings are going to be for the next Sunday. And so I, I looked them up last Sunday and I saw, oh no, the Ten Commandments. And so I wrote a sermon about the Ten Commandments and I also will say something to you briefly about the cleansing of the temple in John's Gospel. But I thought that as I preached this sermon from 8 o'clock on that I was going to switch gears slightly and talk about the Ten Commandments in the context of an overall understanding about how Christian people might wish to know uh, what is our moral and ethical approach to things or what ought to be our moral and ethical approach. There's all kinds of competing views about this. There always have been. Some believe that it is the proper role of the Christian teacher and preacher and indeed of any faithful Christian person to be the purveyor of fixed moral concepts that they communicate to people unflinchingly. So what I'm hoping to show you is that with even the Ten Commandments, we're looking at a, a set of commandments or laws that themselves went through a process of development and also had application in their origins to the situation on the ground for a nomadic peoples who were in some way coming to grips with their common life together with the challenges and the opportunities that were in front of them wandering in the desert. It was a good thing they did this. Remember, I've also said to you that if the people of Israel had gone on the exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land in a straight line and with great purpose, they would have been there in about three weeks. And instead, they were 40 years wandering around, right? Now, it's a metaphor for the, the idea of moving to a place of new identity and a new self-definition, the ability to turn away from the place of remembered good times where sometimes you and I look at our past through rose-colored glasses, particularly when things get difficult now. You know, one of the de definitions of a romantic is somebody who believes that there was a time in the past that's better than the one they're in now. And that we should seek that as being the thing. You know, Somebody told me it's also a definition of neurosis to believe that you can continue to go back and get history right this time. Maybe not. Maybe not. There's nowhere in the Hebrew Bible that the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Commandments. They are called the Ten Words because in the Hebrew letters the way you would read it is that the first letter introduces what it is and that's how it was understood uh, in a way different. I didn't go too deep into this in the preparation of the sermon but you need to know that it was the Ten Words. The difference between this particular code and other codes that were around at the time of the development of the Ten Commandments in the ancient Near East the difference is that these are apodictic, which is the 3995 word for commands, not suggestions. So you have heard 
uh, people in political discourse in this country over the last 25 years uh, believe they're striking a blow for cleverness when they say, you know, God didn't give us ten suggestions. Well, all the other codes did. Right? It's sort of like the difference between riding on an Italian train where the sign in the car says it is unwise to lean out the window while the train is moving. And in Germany, the sign says it is forbidden to lean out the window while the train is moving. It's a little bit of a different approach, don't you think? So these are commandments. Most of the time, the people were made aware of the content of the Ten Commandments in the context of their public liturgy. So the idea of using the Ten Commandments as part of catechesis, which is the fa teaching people about the content of the faith, comes from Christianity. Augustine, who believed that the Ten Commandments might, might need to be included uh, as you taught people about right conduct. Four of the commandments are about our duty to God and six are about our duty to one another. In the wandering nomadic peoples, the rehearsal in the public liturgy of these commandments was to remind people of their obligations to God and also to list for them the death sins. Do you know what I mean when I say that? You do this, so you better know what these six are. Do you think the Ten Commandments should be the sum total of how we understand what it is to live rightly and in a moral fashion? Because to be frank with you, a lot of the stuff that's in the six, particularly, uh, deal with certain marginal situations in life that don't come up on a daily basis for most of us. So there might be other ethical and moral challenges and opportunities that are in front of people on a regular basis. And the Ten Commandments might be in, in some way part of our understanding of a tradition that we have taken on part of as we move forward and understand and develop what it means to speak about tradition with a capital T. And here's where I'm departing from what I had originally thought to say about morals and ethics. This is important. I've said this before, but we need to remind ourselves about it from time to time. In 1980 or 81, there was a very, very important book written for the academic community. This is not, don't go out and buy a copy and think, well, it'll be a little light reading with a glass of iced tea or something. It's called After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. And it is about the state of moral philosophy in our country and in Western civilization. It is a monumental book and very important, even for those who deeply disagree with him, it now has to be dealt with. So he begins the book with two things. The first is Captain Cook, off the Hawaiian Islands in 1789. He gets off the ships and they go ashore. And they're in the Hawaiian Islands for a while, and it doesn't take long to realize that the customs and habits 
of the Polynesian people are quite different than their own in England. Things are a little looser, a little more flexible, a little bit more liberal about a number of things. Uh, Although the crews don't find it too hard to fairly quickly get involved in the Polynesian way. But Captain Cook and his leadership decide that it might be a good idea to sit down with King Kamehameha and to ask him some questions about why people do what they do. So he arranges a meeting and he sits there with the king and he said, King Kamehameha, we have some questions about what it is that you do. You have customs and ways of of being and relating that are different than what we have in our country and we would like to know some of the reasons. For example, why don't the women eat with the men? And King Kamehameha says, because it is taboo. And Captain Cook says, what is taboo? And King Kamehameha says, in so many words, you know, uh, I'm not really sure what taboo is. I just know that it's taboo. McIntyre says, whereupon by 1830 he was able to abolish all of the taboo rules, thereby leaving the Polynesian people open to the blandishments of New England Calvinist missionaries. (laughs) What's his point? His point is, is that the Hawaiian people have been completely detached from the taboo rules tradition that animated why you did these things. Whether you accept them or don't accept them, there was a tradition that created them. It is, a, it is a, a coherent thing to dwell in culturally to understand the rules, where they came from and what they mean. And he uses it as an example to say that the current state of moral discourse all over the Western world, certainly in this country, is there is no understanding of the traditions that created conduct of any kind. So the way in which we make moral and ethical decisions is based on something that is known in philosophy as emotivism. How you feel about it. The next example that he tells is uh, a political party comes to power in the United States whose principal platform says that all of the ills of American culture are the result of the teaching, the practice, and the work of science. And so what needs to happen is we've got to get rid of the scientific method. Whereupon they get elected and they do. They destroy the laboratories, burn the books, get rid of people doing research, and we put up with this for nearly a generation. And finally people come to their senses and say, we can't have this anymore, we've got to do this differently. So they vote the the party out, and here we are, and somebody, they start to have meetings, and they say, how are we going to create science? 
somebody finds a book on phlogiston theory, a copy of Lyle's geography, Newton's physics, an essay by Albert Einstein doing some nuancing for his theory of special relativity, a copy of The Origin of the Species, a copy of Helpful Hints for the Laboratory Technician. <laughs> well, so how do you put the, together science? Because you've got all these different traditions or pieces from the past that have no co coherent arrangement or connection initially. Also, the tendency, I think a lot of us have had this tendency, in this he would say is the confusion between science and technology. So there's a lot of how-to stuff out there about how to create the, the better widget, but not science, you know, the way you do this. So there needs to be some kind of a tradition in which we embody our moral and ethical outlook. The Ten Commandments may be a piece in the sense that it brings before people somehow the duty to God and the duty to one another and the importance of understanding morals and ethics as having some sort of community uh, importance that we might share some common values. I happen to agree with McIntyre in large part that the starting place ought to be once again focusing on the virtues which we get from Aristotle. You know, temperance, prudence, fortitude and how you build character through the cultivation of those traits internally. Remember that in Greek, the word for ethics in English, the word for how we understand that is arete, and that means excellence. How do you pursue the good in your life? How do you pursue excellence in your life in relationship? So that as a public person, you seek with others always to move in a direction where it is easier to have a society where people are good. And that there is some resilience within that tradition to be able to meet new challenges and new opportunities when that tradition has no answer. And a lively and vital tradition is able to do that. So fixing on the Ten Commandments is sort of the centerpiece and source of all of our moral and ethical conduct is probably too limiting. You know, I've been a pastor long enough, too, to have people actually say to me, you know, I wouldn't know what to say if I went to confession because I haven't done anything. And mean it. Because if you haven't killed anybody, you haven't stolen anything, you haven't committed adultery, you haven't cursed God, you're in the clear. You know, they'll give you a blank look. So I have occasionally suggested, well, that even in the Ten Commandments, there's one at the very end where it talks about covetousness which is an internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental state. So maybe your internal, spiritual, emotional, and mental states have something to do with conduct. 
and how as we seek to make them more mature in relationship, we then begin to see how to be more ethical and what it is we're supposed to do as we live our lives personally and corporately. Let me just exercise one final hobby horse about this, and that is, uh, in a lot of this discourse over the last several years, remember that kerfuffle we had? There was a judge in Alabama who wanted to have the Ten Commandments outside in front of the courthouse. And in a lot of that dialogue and people blogging or writing things, we heard reference to the Christian Ten Commandments. Don't you believe that for a moment? That gets everybody in deep hot water on more than one front. So the Ten Commandments represent an important piece to our understanding and our tradition. You can't let go of them entirely, but they don't represent the circumference of our moral and ethical understanding. In the story of the cleansing of the temple, John in his gospel places this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is at the end and he's arrested and then tried and killed. Uh, That's probably what happened historically. There is a technique in biblical scholarship when you want to test the historical veracity of stuff in the Bible. And it's it's called multiple attestation. And multiple attestation is clear with the cleansing of the temple. All four Gospels mention it. It is a widely attested fact. But John has an interest in beginning the ministry of Jesus with this uh, in the early, t- early on to give people an indication that he, c- he intends to continue as he has begun. And so the nature of his ministry as he moves forward and his words and works will in some ways have that kind of disruptive influence on people whose, people whose views about how God functions in the creation is very fixed. For the synoptic tradition, we have the historical depiction of an event that produced Jesus' death. Most people now would agree that this is what it is. Now, I've heard sermons preached and people advocate in some uh, books that I've read years and years ago that this is all about Jesus sitting lightly on worship. And it's, it, it's our internal condition and what we say and what we, all of those sorts of things. Uh, a biblical scholar I respect very much said that's sort of a 19th century Protestant outlook and not one that might be historically accurate. By all accounts, Jesus was a very pious and careful practitioner of his religion. And in order for him to have been where he was in the temple, by the way, we have found this archaeologically within the last several years, the location of where this took place. has the thing where the cattle are tied up and found the area where the animals were sold for the sacrifices. And so he was concerned, I think, about correspondence between the letter and the spirit. And he would have been in a condition, Jesus, of ritual purity in order for him to be there. He would have had to have been careful about the practice of his religion. 
to be in that part of the temple. I suspect what we discover is that when you get a little deeper into the new work being done in New Testament studies about the social world of uh, the temple life and everything, that it wasn't just people selling animals there for sacrifices, but uh, multitasking and lending money and doing a variety of other things in the temple precincts that he found to be objectionable and should have. And so his scene was for the purpose of bringing together once again the correspondence between the letter and the spirit. It's a commercial message for us as we are in the season of Lent to think about careful worship, to think about its centrality and importance for us as individuals and as a community. You know, I've told you this before, when I was a young priest and people would come out the door and they would say, well, you know, Father Brewer, I don't know whether the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. I'm not so sure I believe in all that stuff in the creed. All I know is when I come to church and I receive communion, I feel better. And I used to pull myself up. I'm ashamed of this now, I have to tell you. I used to pull myself up to my full height and say, well, you can't just think. You have to. Yes, I'm all okay. Good. I hope you feel better. And I hope because you do feel better that you're going to go out and make a difference tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Because you got it. This isn't a checking a box of all of the theological, uh, abstruse theological views about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist or about how you're supposed to dispose yourself. However, Episcopalians believe in something or just sort of do something that is not orthodoxy, it is orthopraxy. And what that means is that we're careful about our worship. And by the signs and the symbols that we, uh, we show forth in our common worship, we are sitting in the best location of the tradition. You know, we consume all the bread and the wine at the end of the liturgy, we treat it with reverence and care. There are certain things that we do to say, we believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And as we comport ourselves as a community of faith, we take that presence seriously. Christ is present in every one of you in the assembly. Christ is present when you hear the biblical texts read to you. Christ is present when Father Emerson proclaims the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer of consecration. Christ is present in the communion when you receive it. And Christ is present in all of you as you go out the door for the week. That's the five ways, Father Thomas Keating would say, that Christ is present in the Eucharist. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, bring some authentic worship into your life. See if there are things in your life that need uh, a closer correspondence between the letter and the spirit. Think about pursuing excellence in your relationships, clean dealings, removing corrupt motive, which is one of the predicates for the season of Lent. And if you do that, I think you'll be in the spirit of why these readings are in the lectionary uh, for the third Sunday in Lent. Amen. <laughs>